And so here we are at the end of our week-long journey through just a handful of the wonderful films that 2016 has given us. Welcome to Let the Right Films In. This is part three, the final part, the third piece of the Godhead, the last time on the Trident. See, when you say it like that, now I'm like, wait, which episode is the Father, which episode is the Son, and which episode is the Holy Ghost? Uh, If you would like to vote in this very important poll and choose which episode is which, drop us a line. You're listening to Let the Right Films In. This is the final part of our 2016 year in review series. I am here with my host, Kayla St. Ange. What up? And we are about to put a cap on 2016. Thank you to everyone who has listened and participated. This was a lot of work, but it was also a lot of fun. And I am glad to have this out there. And, you know, we just might have an extra special treat for you before the end of the year. But that's about an entirely different movie that came out. It's Carol. (laughs) Carol, 2015, directed by Todd Haynes. Yes. Well, we spoiled the surprise, but you gotta... (laughs) Merry Christmas. (laughs) Merry Christmas. Since it's probably not going to be out by Christmas. Happy New Year. (laughs) The spirit of Christmas continues all year round, and therefore we could do an episode about Carol any time of the year and it would be appropriate. Also, lesbians. Yes. Do you just add that on to like a sentence every now and then? It makes every sentence better. <laughs> now, are they lesbian or bisexual? Because I'm pretty sure we've discussed this. And isn't Carol bisexual? Well, mm, I would... I, we haven't discussed this. You have spoken on it to we me. We will then... save this for the episode. How about that? Because I actually have a lot of feelings about that. Okay. And they are not appropriate for what we're doing right now. True. This is This is just a teaser. <laughs> Even though this was the big event, we are currently recording the capper to the big event of our recording schedule. We're teasing this treat. That's because we're awesome. We are indeed. Always working. So part one of this series was family friendly. I removed the one instance of Kayla dropping an F-bomb. Just casually, (laughs) casually cut it out of there. And also, you know, a couple of the, um, hmm... Fond comments about Kate McKinnon, <laughs> so that it was I a nice. I don't see what's not family, family friendly, friendly about episode that. about animation and sci-fi and busting ghosts. And then our part two was all about the horror and the sci-fi with some of my favorite releases of the year. And this episode is everything else. Uh, there isn't really a theme to it, except for you know movies that sell. Several of our guests. Movies that came out in 2016. No. The theme theme is other 2016 movies. Yes, after all, much preamble. Kayla, what is your final choice for uh, a favorite movie of 2016? Um, Well, so I just want to clarify before we start there are definitely other movies that I wish I had seen instead of Hail Caesar. However, this has been kind of a light theater year for me. You know, we could just go watch Suicide Squad right now. Oh, God. No. Anyway, so my choices after, like, my two favorites that I had seen this year boiled down to Hail Caesar or The Magnificent Seven. (laughs) Both of which I saw in theaters with my friend Ramya, who will literally just pick any movie in the universe and decide to go see it, which is how that happened. So, Hail Caesar is the Coen Brothers 2016 offering. It is completely different than their last film, uh, Inside Lone Davis, which is also awesome. 
But this one is more of a, okay, it's not more of, it literally is a comedy. <laughs> it stars everyone, but most notably Josh Brolin as a highly romanticized and fictionalized version of Eddie Mannix, the old Hollywood fixer. Um, George Clooney as a goofball movie star who accidentally gets roped into communism because it wouldn't be a movie about old Hollywood if we weren't talking about communism. Uh, Tilda Swinton is in it. The guy who's going to play Han Solo, whose last name I don't know how to pronounce, is in it. Oh, it's yeah. Alden <laughs> That guy <laughs> is in it. Just look, I, I could go Channing Tatum, Scarlett Johansson, uh, Jonah, Jonah Hill. Hill. I am a big fan of old Hollywood, despite its numerous flaws. Uh, there are just... As detailed in You Must Remember This. Yes. Uh, favorite podcast, You Must Remember This. <laughs> and also kind of in our Casablanca episode, if you want to flash back to that. But uh, yeah, so I, I really like learning about that era of film. It is, I mean, it's really important to me as, you know, the building block of like why we're here, like why we're interested in this thing that we do and that we talk about. And Hollywood also loves old Hollywood and loves making movies about it. Big fan of old Hollywood. <laughs> and really. New Hollywood is. Uh, yeah. They also really like trying to make it look a lot cuter than it was. But yeah. So the movie follows uh, this fictional version of Eddie Mannix throughout a day in the life as he tries to decide if he wants to continue to be the studio fixer. Throughout the day, there are various shenanigans, uh, including aforementioned George Clooney being kidnapped by communists, Mm. Scarlett Johansson falling pregnant, and the studio needing to arrange a marriage or something for her because illegitimate marriage, not a good thing. Or illegitimate children, sorry. Not a good thing in the olden days. Uh, Channing Tatum is... (laughs) involved in some incredible homosexual subtext because if you don't if you are not aware old hollywood is also so gay like surprisingly so gay and i think they did a really good job so uh things that i liked about this film uh the comedic timing is great there are a lot of really interesting scenes in which the coen brothers kind of just let us merge into the film that they're choosing, like that they're shooting. And sometimes it gets a little bit out of hand. Like I think that the Channing Tatum tap dancing bar scene goes a little long. Disagree. It's like, it's, it's good at first, but I, I think if it had cut, like they cut two minutes from, there's a lot. The whole how- movie is just a series of loosely connected comic set pieces that they just let go. And yeah. sometimes it works really well. And other times, Frances McDormand gets her tie stuck in the in the projection equipment. Yeah, and I know that people, ha- a lot of people, didn't like this movie as much because it was so piecemeal. But I kind of like uh, Coen Brothers are really hit and miss for me. So to have like kind of a middle of the road Coen Brothers movie was really nice. Unlike a work of genius like Burn After Reading. You know I hate that movie. Why you got to call me out like this all the time? I'm, I'm not calling you out. I'm just <laughs> I love Burn After Reading, and I just. Just need people to know. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, overall, I think this is a really good movie. If you just want to just sit down and relax and enjoy something and laugh, this is the movie for you. Everyone you've ever liked probably is in it. <laughs> and it's directed by the Coen brothers. And the good news about the Coen brothers is that even on like their worst day, 
they're still better than 90% of other filmmakers. So and any actor will line up and do anything for them and become the biggest goofball in the world. This is true. But yeah, so that is what she wrote on Hail Caesar, or what she recorded, I guess. More accurately, because we're doing a podcast and not writing. Tyler, what is your pick for the uh, catch-all episode of 2016? I'm trying to figure out how to fit Would That It Were 2016 <laughs> or something <laughs> there. Would That It Were. Would That It Were. <laughs> It's complicated. <laughs> this is a Hail Caesar joke that, if you haven't oh seen God. it. <laughs> I'm pretty excited for that guy to play Han Solo. I really liked him in he's, this movie. <laughs> he's delightful. He's so good. <laughs> you you really should watch Hail Caesar. It's it's, it's, it's good. delightful. Like I would have preferred to have seen some other movies in theaters, but I'm not like upset that I saw this one. There's the weakest part. One part of the movie that doesn't work for me is Josh Brolin as Eddie Mannix, even though he's kind of perfect for the role. And that's like the overarching thing that he's ties the whole there. movie together. Like he's the spine of the movie. Yet I love everything else that's going on around him. And he's just sure. It's because Josh Brolin is a bad person in real life. <laughs> he's playing a bad person in the movie. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> well, man, I gotta, I got I gotta reel back the jokes because I gotta get, I gotta get very real here. Because we're talking about the uh, the best movie of 2016. Uh, I haven't seen La La Land, but I'm still <laughs> going to roll with saying that this is the best movie of 2016. Moonlight. Ah, yes. Okay, I was like, yes. wait, what are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> he told me what he was going to do before he recorded, and I forgot. <laughs> Independence Day Resurgence. <laughs> ugh, ugh. Legend of Tarzan. Ugh. <laughs> the Forest. No. God, we did see The Forest in theaters, too. Fuck. The first movie we saw <laughs> in the year of 2016 was The Forest. I'm sorry, I have to go... In theaters. I have to go take a drink because I saw The Forest in theaters, but not The Handmaiden. (laughs) Not The Handmaiden? Not Moonlight? I work at night. It's hard. (laughs) Anyway, continue. I would love to hear you talk about Moonlight because I really want to see it. Okay. I thought maybe because you want to forget about The Forest. I I suppose it will accomplish... (laughs) It will accomplish both things. Honestly, it's an insult to Moonlight that I mentioned The Forest right before it, so... (laughs) Moonlight is a little film that has grown bigger and bigger uh, due to both critical and financial success. It is the latest effort from Barry Jenkins, uh, starring a number of recognizable people, Mahershala Ali, Janelle Monet, Naomi Harris, Andre Holland, but uh, the real stars of the movie are the three young men who play the main character, this movie is about a young black man discovering his sexuality. He's gay. What? <laughs> it's about this young man uh, discovering his sexuality and uh, just and finding himself, really, uh, as told through three very key parts of, of his life. One as a young boy, one as a teenager, and one as um, like a young man. The actors who play them are Alex Hibbert, Ashton Sanders, and Trevante Rhodes. They all look quite different, but one of the many masterful strokes of this movie is how all three actors who play Chiron are quite, or who are, are um, undeniably him throughout the whole movie. Uh, there's a certain part through between two of the acts, uh, Chiron goes undergoes quite the physical change 
but because of the acting of uh, especially Ashton Sanders and Travante Rhodes, it is undeniably him. Chiron is quiet and watchful and really... He, he would never have a podcast because he <laughs> he is uh, he takes his time and is very careful with everything he says. He's very controlled in that way and always watching people and always listening to people. Um, that contributes to this movie, which is one of the most tender movies I've ever seen. It is beautiful both in the cool blue cinematography and in the just really tender story that it tells, which could sound like it is um like many like oscar movies in years past like it might revel in tragedy but it doesn't difficult events happen his life is not easy but there are also beautiful moments in it and there and it this more than any other movie this year left me feeling hope and just i don't know my heart swelled so much watching this and i am his heart grew three sizes. <laughs> I'm a crier at movies, you know? They make me emotional, but nothing struck a chord with me quite like this. I immediately messaged everyone I knew and said, Oh my god, you must see this. I've I had heard good th- it's been it's it's been a few weeks since I saw this. I saw this basically as soon as I could because I'd heard great things, but I'd also heard some mitigating things like one segment or another didn't quite hold up. I think they are all tremendous. Actually, the last scene in each each uh, segment is completely transfixing for different reasons. And just, you cannot take your eyes off the scene. It's the reason Mahershala Ali, uh, even though he his role is smaller relatively, he is so tremendous that he really should win Best Supporting Actor. No disrespect to Jeff Bridges. And the racist character he plays in... Well, it's because... There, there's talk that Jeff Bridges might, uh, might somehow pull this out. Why? When will Jeff Bridges shut up <laughs> and stop doing that? Mahershala Ali, who we saw earlier this year, is a much different character in Luke Cage. is absolutely tremendous. Uh, as are uh, Naomi Harris is wonderful in a role that is uh, much less flattering, but very key to Chiron's development throughout the film. Janelle Monet, who we also see in Hidden Figures, uh, and is a longtime favorite of the podcast for her music, uh, suddenly a trem- not not suddenly a tremendous actor, but suddenly we are getting the chance to see her and be tremendous at acting. And I, I, I don't want to go on too long. It's just a, it it's a masterpiece. So I I make a point on this podcast to say I never think a movie is perfect, and I so I wouldn't say moonlight is perfect but it's about the closest i've seen and when it comes with such a vital tale that i can't imagine many like that that we have not had the chance to see before and the fact that it's doing so well and that it it went from like an oscar hopeful like oh it would be really cool if you know they recognize something from moonlight to the cast winning awards mahershala ali becoming a favorite for uh supporting actor moonlight becoming a legitimate best picture threat and i know the oscars don't mean everything but in this case it would mean something <laughs> it would like, like rewarding this movie after like 
the the journey like the journey of the movie itself as well uh gaining gaining through word of mouth and box office success uh, be, capping it all off with an oscar for best picture would be incredible um but you really should see this movie if it still is in a theater near you if you can't go to see it that way as soon as it's available on vod or dvd or whatever way legally you can watch it you should do that and give it your money <laughs> um i can't wait to double feature this in carol and literally die it is like it <laughs> lay remind- <me> down <laughs> it, <laughs> it's done it's over that's all that matters like in life it reminded me a lot of carol not just because they're both gay and came out around christmas time but because of how stunning they are, how wonderfully the music works with the visuals, and just how important looks and touches in silent moments are to the movie. Um, Andre Holland is in the third act, and the acting, the the relationship that Andre Holland and Trevante Rhodes develop, and I don't even mean like, they become i don't i don't mean in becoming a couple or anything just those two on screen is transfixing i i i'm gonna like swoon just thinking <laughs> about it. it it it's an incredible movie and it's in many ways an unspoilable movie but you will <laughs> after this year that has claimed so many people's uh belief in goodness <laughs> It, it's wonderful, and I just love it so very, very much. And everything great you've heard about it is completely true. I would just like to toss in a note that, uh, Hollywood, you're free to continue making movies that are not literally just tragedy porn for gay people. We know that life is hard for... It's difficult to not be straight. And we know that, and every single movie doesn't need to be about that but isn't your life just always miserable (laughs) like if you're not straight on like all the time you're just like suffering uh according to (laughs) according to all media yes and if you're a lesbian you die so um, i thought if you were bisexual you died is it both it's both oh okay gay men usually get to live but it's not a given okay you might also just never get to be with the one you love anyway so what i'm saying is uh it's good to like to have those things mentioned in movies but there's a place for those you are doing such a better service to your audience by not making us cry all the time in sadness (laughs) so are you saying there are other gay stories to tell yes and i am hoping that this trend is one that will continue i probably could have phrased that better (laughs) <laughs> it's okay i'm just i'm i hope that this will continue that we have these more like hopeful and uplifting and just gorgeous stories that aren't about all of us dying <laughs> so yeah i guess that's my last note on that <laughs> and i know we featured like three uh movies from the studio on the previous podcast but this is really <laughs> The greatest achievement of A24. And of course, it's a year of incredible achievements by A24. Like, what they've done is pretty, feels pretty unprecedented. I'm getting an A24 tattoo. I know, we really should. (laughs) We gotta change, like, we can't take their exact logo, but it should be like a riff on the logo. They could give us money. Can we start an A24 podcast? (laughs) Isn't that what this is? (laughs) 
It's, anyway. You know, we'd have much more fun if it was an A24 podcast than, than an IMDb podcast. Yep. You're not wrong. Even anyway. if it did mean watching Tusk and the Sea of Trees. <laughs> All right, that's too much introspection on how terrible the IMDb 250 is. Let's, uh... No, those last two are not on the IMDb 250. They're A24. No, I know. Reasons. I'm saying okay. that if we continue to talk about how terrible the IMDb 250 oh, okay. is. I can talk more about Moonlight. I... <laughs> we have, we so have many other guests other to get to. to. Talk. Yeah. We do. <laughs> we do. We have a wonderful conversation with Jackie. We had a special correspondent make it out to a Shin Godzilla showing when it was in the U.S. for a week. Uh, we have Jeff Bridges. <laughs> this has been our year-end series. Whether this is the first one or the third one you've listened to, thank you for listening at all. I hope that uh, the words of us, of mine and Kayla's words, Kayla and my words, and the words of our guests got you to see some of these movies. And yeah, just thank you. We look forward to having another great year in 2017. Sitting with me now is Phil Nobile Jr. of BirthMoviesDeath.com, editor-at-large and co-host of the Birth Movies Death podcast. Phil, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Tyler. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you much. And what movie did you bring to us today? Uh, today, I wanted to talk about a movie I saw two days ago called Jackie. It's uh, the first English-language film by director by the name of, I want to say, <laughs> Pablo Larraín. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I don't know. I thought it was just Pablo Lorraine, but I cannot pretend to actually know that. <laughs> I saw an accent, and I just erred on the side of safety there. Um, but it's, uh, as everybody probably knows, it's it's a very intimate little story about Jackie Kennedy's days to week following uh, the assassination of JFK. Uh, and I think what people are drawn to when they are, the way they've been marketing it and the, the curiosity of people who go to see it, it's built around this impersonation that Natalie Portman's doing of Jackie Kennedy. It's a very mannered, very specific performance that hews very closely to Jackie Kennedy's voice. So closely, in fact, that there's a recurring uh, device in the film. So in 61, Jackie Kennedy gave a televised tour of the White House. And that that tour is featured very prominently in the film because the film time hops quite a bit. And in those moments, Natalie Portman is literally lip-syncing the real Jackie Kennedy's voice. And most people can't tell, but that's how bang on her voice is. But the problem, I, I said all that to illustrate the problem with uh, how people are receiving this movie is that the conversation has been almost exclusively about the impersonation. And it's a kind of a gimmicky way to sell a movie, and it's kind of a bad way to watch a movie. And it's a shame because there's a really interesting movie happening under the surface here. That pretty much jives with what I've seen. Um, I have not seen it yet, but basically even in some of the deeper dives I look into on the movie, everything is, I'd say 95% of it is about Natalie Portman. And then every now and then someone mentions Greta Gerwig or the score, but it's almost all about 
Natalie Portman as Jackie Kennedy. Yeah, and, and you know she's she's in every I, I I think almost every shot of the film potentially at least in every scene. It's it's very much uh, an intimate intimate movie. So much that the camera is inches from her face during a lot of the thing. It's a uh, it's a very conscious decision to really get in there and try to get like the camera's literally trying to crawl inside of her head. Um, and I don't know that you can do that with a figure of history. Uh, who's experienced such a traumatic event. The movie purports to sort of get inside her head, and I don't know if it's accurate. I don't know how accurate any of it is, but it is, uh, it's emotionally authentic in terms of how people deal with grief. Cause I think I said on Twitter, there's, there's a, the twin engines of grief are selfishness. Look, look at what happened to me. Acknowledge what happened to me. Someone pay attention to what I've been through. And then the other engine of grief is, how do I make sense of the world again? And it's like almost an instinct. You know, when something upends your world, your instinct is to try to put everything back together as quickly as can. It's almost like a automated thing. And this movie nails that. And it's something like you might think you don't relate to the first lady of the United States, but if you've lost someone, you relate to this intensely. And that was the real feat of this movie for me. This is coming from a place of not seeing, having seen it, but I mean, that seems like such a tremendous... Uh, like such a triumph in a way, because this seems like one of the more high difficulty premises that has been executed pretty well, because I mean, in an alternate universe, you can just imagine all the hot takes and all the think pieces that are coming out about how it's, how it could be manipulative or how it's about like how it foils near history, the way we've seen like something like zero dark 30 kind of get a much different, uh, much different and much closer, but the way that was kind of derailed by its portrayal of recent history. And the fact that this is even the mixed receptions are somewhat positive and I, I that's part of why i can't wait to see it because if it's really executing it as well as i've heard and as well you as well as you seem to be purporting that seems like a real feat yeah and it's uh aesthetically it's a kick too it's shot on 16 millimeter film uh except for again the recreations of her television special which seem to be shot on old video cameras um and then you know transferred over but uh it's it's got this real handmade old world feel to it. The score, I I might be wrong, but I suspect that much like Psycho, the score is only strings, and it gives it a real horror movie kind of feel. There's a dread to the score that that kind of sucker punches you in moments. It's really something special, and it's a tight 99 minute movie. I I really can't recommend it enough. And I have to ask, um, just because this is a pet peeve of not only my, not only me, but like many people, uh, do they do the thing at the end of the movie where they show you pictures of everyone who is involved in the movie, like the real pictures of the, uh, the, the people being portrayed? That, that seems to be a recent thing, huh? Like Sully did it and there was another one that sort of, uh, gosh, uh, Hacksaw Ridge did it. Uh, but no, I think that because, these people, I mean, Kennedy's on the half dollar. He's like Jackie Kennedy is, uh, and the film, it, you know, it almost does the reverse of that. I don't want to tell you the end, but it almost does a reverse of that. It doesn't show you the real person, but it shows you the effect of the real person in the world, uh, which is a, certainly a much more, uh, interesting take. But I don't think you need to see the real people on, on, uh, at the end of this thing because it would almost shatter this, this reality that's been created for the past 99 minutes. I'm glad to hear that because I, I, it's been, I mean, it's, it seems to be happening more and more and I'm okay without it. I, I know, I know what a JFK looks like. I've seen many pictures. Um, mm-hmm. 
And hopping back to the score too, like I think I had heard but had forgotten that it was all strings, and that it was uh, by Mika Levy, who also did Under the Skin, and I that this that it's a biopic, but with this um this person who does such unsettling and uh almost like horror adjacent music. I just uh, I can't I can't wait to take it in myself, and especially after uh, the things you've said, I'm pretty excited to check this out. Yeah, it's it's something special, and I think. Uh... Uh, film nerds, in a way, just sort of gravitate to genre, and they gloss over stuff that might strike them as as more mainstream or more, you know, generic kind of dramas. This is something special. I would put it on a shelf next to Under the Skin. It's a really singular piece. Yeah, that is a weird fusion that I don't know. I, I could not name something off the top of my head that has hewed uh, so close to what people might call Oscar bait, but been so... Uh, I don't know. So weird. <laughs> so uh, it's it's a subversive kind of Oscar bait because it is not an Oscar type picture at all. But uh, to just circle back to Natalie Portman, it is not just an impersonation or an accent. She's doing incredible work in the film. And similar to the uh, the pictures at the end, uh, are there any terrible Boston accents, or do they manage to keep them under control? Uh, it's pretty mild. Uh, you know, I think they talked about Jackie's accent as being mid Atlantic, sort of urban so she's got like some like a, it's like an east coast accent but it's been shoved through finishing school so that's but that's what the real jackie sounds like and it's almost as if they use her real voice in parts to just sort of demonstrate to you that nope this is the real voice this is what she sounded like but uh you don't have when john f kennedy turns up or bobby kennedy turn ups they're they're not kind of uh era jackie era it's it's not really uh it's not really going that direction yeah um, and Bobby's got a much bigger role than John does, obviously. But mm. and that's uh, Peter Skarsgård, and he does a great job. Awesome. And uh, did I guess uh, it kind of wraps it up? Did you have any final thoughts on the movie? Maybe any shouts for Greta Gerwig or anything like that? <laughs> you know, Greta Gerwig uh, kind of disappears into her role. I think she's she's um, she's great, but uh, it's not her movie. She's she is you know a true supporting actress in this. She's letting letting Natalie Portman do her thing. And uh, I, I always like seeing actors kind of be generous with each other, I think. And, uh, and certainly you're seeing a lot of that in this movie. They're all in service. Billy Crudup. Um, gosh, who's the gentleman who plays Lyndon B. Johnson? Oh, John Carroll Lynch. He, John Carroll Lynch, the Zodiac. He um, he plays <laughs> LBJ, and he's, he's good. Um, John Carroll Lynch plays LBJ. All right. That's... Yeah, and you know what? He might be the distracting one because it's like he really don't look anything like LBJ, but it's it's okay. I'm so um, used to him being the terrifying guy in most movies. Yeah, he's not terrifying. They throw a little shade at him about uh-huh. his decision to be sworn in, like on the plane and, and that sort of thing. Um, there's a lot of. I joked on Twitter that this is a movie about um, an event planner facing her greatest challenge while being evicted from her home, and that's. That's literally what it is. She's trying to arrange a funeral that that she wants the world to know what happened. Like it's a selfish impulse. She wants the world to pay attention to her and her fa- and her pain. She wants to march down the street in Washington with her pain, and she wants the world to see it. And she's also dealing with all of the the engine of of government where you don't live in the White House anymore because you're not the first lady anymore. Like literally in the, in a flash, she stopped being the first lady. And and the movie does some interesting things with the uh, the mechanics of that, about what happens when, when you're just suddenly not the first lady anymore. Uh, and it's uh, 
uh, there's a lot of, you'll, you'll watch it in the wake of this last presidential election and think a lot of other thoughts too while you're watching it, uh, about an era that's ending and you're gonna, you know, you're not gonna feel good when you walk out of it, but it's worth, it's definitely worth seeing. I was gonna say, this sounds endlessly fascinating. I can't wait to check it out. Thanks for being on with us again. And, uh, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about, uh, your own work that you do? Uh, well, I'm one of the stable of writers for Birth Movies Death. We are a website that's owned by the Alamo Draft House. Uh, so I would love for you to read Birth Movies Death. We've got a lot of new voices on the site that we're uh, cultivating and just trying to get just trying to get a, a bigger chorus of voices out there. I think film writing on the internet's a lot of white dudes my age and maybe a little younger. And uh, we're trying to sort of like shake that up a little bit over at Birth Movies Death right now. That's kind of our job one, and uh, it's coming along. And uh, I want you to come visit and, and read it and find writers whose voices you agree with or disagree with. We don't mind get, mixing it up in the comment sections with people who make reasoned points. Uh, we, we love interacting with our readers, and I think that's maybe a little bit unique to our site. I don't see a lot of that on, on other film writing sites, but uh, it's a big part of our site. And we've cultivated a pretty cool community of commenters, uh, and we're always waving in more people if we can. Reasoned points being the key words there. Uh <laughs> Yeah. But absolutely. I mean, I mean, clearly I'm a little biased, uh, or maybe not biased, but being on the uh, being on the line with you, I'd be uh, predisposed to say this. But I do really enjoy Birth Movies, Death, and their content, and uh, so I really appreciate being on today, and uh, I'll definitely be sharing uh, everything with our listeners. And yeah, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Tyler. guest good friend and uh frequent firebrand on twitter patrick haynes <laughs> what's happening how's it going man uh pretty good can't complain excellent well thanks for being on the podcast again and why don't you talk about the uh 2016 movie you brought to us today yeah uh my movie of choice is heller highwater which was directed by david mckenzie and written by taylor sheridan um it's a western i like westerns a lot but uh i feel like this was fairly different from your standard kind of western fairs and that stuck out to me a lot so yeah this was my favorite movie of the year nice and uh it's gotten especially after uh, certain events on november 8th it's gotten like an extra boost is like you know this is one of those vaunted movies about flyover country that we need to have more of or you know whatever right. people are saying but yeah uh, it is a pretty cool western and um Without going too far in, it's about these two brothers who are uh, doing small-time robberies of banks, I guess, to try to right. gather up enough to save the farm, basically. The yeah, like they, their mother, um, who one of the... It's a movie about two brothers, uh, Chris Pine and Ben Foster play the brothers, and their mother, who one of them is closer to, had passed away, 
and they find out after her passing that the family farm is on very profitable uh, oil drilling land. But in order to be able to sell the farm and profit on that, they have to pay off the mortgages on the home. And to get the money to do that, they rob uh, like a small chain of West Texas banks. And part of it's about the robberies. There are a couple of uh, set piece kind of um, action scenes that detail that. And then the majority of it is about uh, two relationships, the uh, relationship between the brothers and then the relationship between the two Texas Rangers played by Jeff Bridges and Gil Birmingham, who you might recognize from uh, Fargo the TV show and a couple other things. Um, it's about their relationship as well. And uh, for me, what I really liked about it the most is that there are a lot of uh, Western movies made by people from Texas. Like uh, one that stuck out to me notably was, I think it was called Out of the Furnace a couple of years ago or something like that with the... Uh, Christian Bale that was uh, directed by the guy that did Crazy Heart, I believe. And just westerns where the performances are great and the writing is fine, but the story is pretty paint-by-numbers and uh, sloppy. And this was a western created or directed by a Scotsman and written by... Um, let's see, where is he from? Uh, I don't know where Taylor Sheridan's from, but he was known for being on Sons of, Sons of Anarchy and writing Sicario, so not necessarily Western-based stuff, and then actors that are from Los Angeles and Boston, and they deliver a more true-to-West Texas uh, Western movie than people that are from there, and that was very interesting to me. I feel like it's so easy for Westerns to feel very indebted or nostalgic for Westerns of the past, and they're very much just kind of recreating that. Whereas right. this feels like a very modern Western. It takes place in very yeah. modern times. It's about not exactly the financial crisis, but it talks a lot about big banks and how they've affected the economies of the working class people out there. And really just gets the vibe down out there from yeah. the... Uh, from people being very loose with their guns and uh, ready to put a posse together and, and no oh, time yeah. flat. Uh, it, 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 it has a lot of the hallmarks of the Western, but it stands on its own. It do, you don't need an appreciation of the Western genre right. to appreciate this. Yeah, there's nothing that screams more of a uh, modern and um, less tied to the classics Western to me than scenes where we have people carrying out a robbery kind of gone awry and then they're chased for 20 miles by the locals because of open carry laws and they all have rifles in their trucks or a scene where without spoiling too much a character basically uses a truck as a molotov cocktail <laughs> to blow away these uh people chasing them and uh yeah it's to me what westerns typically boil down to is the relationships as i mean for the most part you know what uh you know what's going to happen. There's going to be a shootout or something or another, and it's going to have law enforcement play a major role. But uh, in this, I feel like uh, Ben Foster, who plays the kind of rough-around-the-edges brother in this, typically you would expect a character like that to, similar to the town, how Ben Affleck kind of has his showdowns with... Uh, Jeremy Renner in that movie, you would expect in this Chris Pine and Ben Foster to be at each other's throats the whole movie. And while there is some kind of conflict between the two of them, 
it's very clear that the brothers love each other and that they're here for each other and stuff and that the um one of the decisions made by one of the brothers towards the end of the movie is something that I feel like just wouldn't happen in any of the other uh, movies of the genre. It would have been more of a showdown between the two brothers than what actually happens at the end of this. And um, that was a very interesting choice to me and something I appreciated a lot. Yeah, it finds a way to investigate a relationship between siblings without turning it into just a fist fight between them or you know they have to they have to really beat each other up and come to respect each other and see each other's viewpoints they're just i mean they're really just brothers who are different but love each other very much and right it seemed very real it's uh you can have arguments with your sibling but it doesn't have to be where three times in an hour and a half you have blow up fights with them <laughs> you know it's it kept it uh to where you could see these as being two people that have known each other their entire lives and they don't have to have like well you did this to me 10 years ago arguments every time they see each other i feel like i'm about to say like the same thing i said earlier but it's just a smart movie that respects its audience and it isn't something that's just being made to you know we got to hit all the check marks and uh target it at a certain audience you know and we'll make a certain amount of money we'll make our budget back or whatever and you know it's not like uh, it doesn't feel like just content that's being pushed out there to keep the books running you know or to to, to fill the coffers again it's it it, it feels like a it, it, i mean it feels like a film a true work of art a picture right. <laughs> yeah it's i mean it's by no means a perfect movie um there's a weird uh kind of set piece in the middle that i don't really know what they were going for and um the relationship between jeff bridges and gilmer birmingham while uh definitely important to the movie and well acted has these weird racist undertones to it well not even undertones just like outright yeah. <laughs> tones and uh i i don't the way the movie carries it it's hard to say whether it's i'm sure they're not uh condoning it but it, uh, it's hard to tell the tone of the movie regarding it um it, it's but, just kind of there it's like that's just part of jeff yeah. Bridges character and the movie is not uh, making a point to either it never makes a point to say hey it's probably not cool to say those things but it's also it, 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 it just it, kind it, of it is weird it. it's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't um, deny I don't doubt that that is a very real thing like in that though sure, like sure. that that kind of pair of friends exists it's just in we don't, we don't often see it <laughs> right or see it so uh, just casual <laughs> yeah it's but, very uh, casual the performances really are like i was saying in the relationships between the um, characters is what sold it for me um there's a scene towards the end where jeff bridge's character uh does something and then goes from laughing with a buddy that he made and just kind of chuckling and horsing around to like just breaking down crying within like a split second and it, it that definitely stuck out to me um there's a scene between ben foster and chris pine where they're just talking to each other at the farm that was pretty notable to me towards the beginning and yeah it's uh i wouldn't say it does anything particularly groundbreaking but the way it does what it does it was handled better than most westerns that uh that i've seen recently and just in terms of 
the way that movies handle relationships between characters, I would say, regardless of genre, it handles it better than a lot of movies I've seen recently. And yeah, that's why I liked it a lot. Excellent. Did you have any final points on it? Uh, Just that for someone that seemed on a uh, TV show to be a walking Ken doll, uh, Taylor Sheridan has turned out to be quite the uh, accomplished screenwriter. And after... um, Sicario and Heller Highwater. I'm pretty excited to see what he does next. I guess uh, this year he has a movie called Wind River coming out that is his directorial debut as well about FBI agents with Jeremy Renner and Elizabeth Olsen. So yeah, I guess uh, I don't know really anything about the director, David McKenzie, but uh, Taylor Sheridan seems to be a name to watch. And I mean, you kind of know what you're getting with Chris Pine and Ben Foster and Jeff Bridges, but they all turn out performances that are near some of the best stuff they've done in their careers that I've seen at least. So, yeah. Yeah. I, and I mean, even I mean, you said that about Taylor, Taylor Sheridan, I think, and he's been doing it for a while, but I enjoy Chris Pine, the actor, and not just Chris Pine, the movie star. If it wasn't for Chris Pratt, I'd say he's one of the most accomplished Chris's out there. Yeah. Check out check out the Ringer pieces with the Battle of the Chrises <laughs> for a definitive list of the best Chrises out there. <laughs> I feel like we'll be having this debate for decades, and I will right. enjoy it every time. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Patrick. Where can we find you on the internet? Um, at Expert Frowner on Twitter. No periods or underscores or spaces. Just uh, the words. <laughs> Excellent. And we look forward to having you on the podcast again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Let's go to Hollywood, burn down the disco, break away to San Francisco. I can see you got stars in your eyes. I can see you got stars in your eyes. I can see you got stars in your eyes. Stars in your eyes. Love is in the air. Break the windows. Shout it out tonight. Have a bitch, bitch. And here with me now is Zach Parr, owner of Have Fun Records. How's it going, Zach? Pretty dang good. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, It's been a while since we've had you on, but, you know, uh, we wanted to bring you back. Uh, Last time you talked about giant lizards run amok, so another giant lizard ran amok this year, and I thought we'd get your opinion on it. What's your movie? Well, as the folks on Twitter would say, I would try to stay on brand with my favorite movie. Uh, and that was uh, Hideki Anno and Shinji Higuchi's uh, Shin Godzilla film that came out this year. Um, it's a pretty crazy film in retrospect now that I think about it because Hideki Anno uh, did my favorite anime of all time, which was Neon, Genes- Neon Genesis Evangelion. And Shinji Higuchi um, did those two terrible Attack on Titan movies that came out recently that hit the theaters. So pretty stoked going into it but I didn't expect it to live up to my expectations and it exceeded my expectations way more than I thought it was going to be. It, it out of the 30 plus movies that are in the Godzilla franchise right now, it took them their 31st try to finally make one as good as the 1954 version. And that to me is 
a testament to the passion that Hidekiano had for the series. That's a kind of high praise, you know. A pretty impressive feat after 50, 60 years and all these tries that this is the one that finally does it. Uh, what do you like so much about this Godzilla? Well, with the 30, the 30 movies in between, you they kind of like... There was a video that touched on it earlier, and it basically was the 54 version had meaning to it, you know? It was much more than a giant monster rampaging around a city. It was about nu- the effects of nuclear testing, nuclear warfare, all this other stuff, and how it affected the Japanese people. But at, over time, especially when the Americans recut the 54 version to be a monster movie and less of a propaganda film, it became just a series about giant monsters, and that's about it. Just, like, giant rubber people, like, attacking each other. But finally, like, I don't know what happened at Toho, but they finally got somebody on board that was like, let's take that vision and make something more with it. So this is the first Godzilla movie with worthwhile characters, meaningful story. Like, it's just, like, mind Like, there's humor in it. There's, like, actual, like... It felt like Edgar Wright did some writing on this movie. That's how, like, funny some scenes were. Some of these characters were... You remember them. Like, there's, like, a fandom now for, like... One of the, I forgot her name, but she had this like quirky personality, somewhat of like a Zoe Deschanel kind of character. It was, it's just crazy how like this movie lived up to that 54 version and exceeded it because they, it just had the final, the finally the director, directorial passion to drive it where it needed to be. And Hidekiano as a writer is usually somebody who can like push the boundaries and he did it. And you talk about how the origins of Godzilla are, you know, uh, post-nuclear Japan, and it has, like, these meanings, these allegories. Uh, what is uh, what is Shin Godzilla about uh, beyond the giant lizard and the uh, the uh, political follies that surround it? Uh, what it? Like, what is the corollary? Or... Is that the right uh, word? Corollary? Allegory? What's the... Like, the political allegories they yeah. reference in there? The biggest one for sure, was, you know how, like, recently Japan has had these, like, massive earthquakes that have been, like, shaking these nuclear reactors and, like, causing, like, this, pretty much these areas in Japan to be poisoned with nuclear fallout. I don't know if fallout's the right word, but just poisoned with, like, this nuclear waste, I guess would be better. Mm-hmm. And they want to touch on that, like, this waste can cause something. It was basically, the movie is, what would Japan do if this menace were to arise and destroy japan so basically that's the first chunk of the movie and the rest of it can i do spoilers Uh, absolutely yep we'll just give a warning right now hey spoilers incoming there's a beautiful moment in the movie where um these secretary not secretaries like these representative senators and like the prime minister are talking about Japan, what it was like in like the 40s and 50s, dealing with with this nuclear problem, how their families and their lives got torn apart because of the nuclear bomb, and thinking what they have to do to destroy Godzilla is re-nuke Japan, like start again, start fresh with the aid of Americans. That's who was going to nuke Godzilla was um, they were planning to get the American help to destroy Godzilla. But there's this another side, uh, opposite of that like praising like hey we're japan we can do this ourselves we can destroy godzilla we do not need help from the americans we do not want to fall on our backs again and 
ask for help. We want to be prideful of who we are. And it was just crazy just to see, like, they, they were so, like, poking so much, like, tongue-in-cheek on Americans and, like, saying, oh, it's like Americans always jumping to the nuclear decision, always being there for the time of need or whatever. And it was the first, like, time in a Godzilla movie where, since 54, where they're like, hey, we're, like, I guess patriotic is the word for it, or they're prideful of who they are. It just made the movie feel more um, meaningful, in a sense, just because, like, a lot of it was just giant monsters doing giant monster things. Now it's like, how do you deal with this giant monster? Like, what are the repercussions of it? What are the economical repercussions of it? Like, they would have, they were talking about in the movie, if they were to nuke, like, kill Godzilla, what would happen if you, like, like, took a nuclear warhead and killed a nuclear being with it? It would destroy, like, a large portion of what Japan is, and that's something they had to think about. Like, they actually had to think about the repercussions and all this other stuff. When I say, like, Godzilla movies were, especially from, like, 54 on, they were mostly about the monster. But 54 was, like, mostly about the characters. Like, there's um a scene in the 54 movie about, like, this mother holding her child and saying, this is the end, and all this stuff, embracing death, and all this other, like, beautiful moments. And then it kind of got lost for those, like, 60 years of having, like, worthwhile characters. I mean, in the 80s and 90s, you had some, like, resemblance of meaningful characters but they were mostly like friends so Godzilla I guess would be the word but they weren't fleshed out they didn't have any development to them or like emotion the ones in the Shin Godzilla movie you had terrific actors beautiful writing I don't want to spoil too much because I want people to see it like I, mean, I on Twitter I've been pushing people to see it for like ever most people haven't had the chance to see it yet there was just that one week that's true and it was very limited the- theatrical run and I kind of wanted to talk about how, like, well that did, because in Japan it killed. It was, like, a huge blockbuster, and in America it did um, a couple million, at least, especially for a limited run, which is mm-hmm. pretty crazy, especially for a Funimation film <clears throat> with, like, almost zero to no marketing to- for it, and it still did pretty well. So this movie obviously is, like, much more a giant monster movie, much more than the 30 other films that were that I'm kind of embarrassed to tell people about. This is like, it's like finally having a movie you've been hyped up for to the max and then exceeding that hype to levels I've never been seen before. The special effects were a big thing because this is the first Godzilla movie produced by Toho that used CGI for the extent, mm. but they did it in such a way where they still use practical effects for the suit. They did um, the mocap way where you have like the suit with the, ping pong balls on but they still had like parts of the uh, Godzilla suit still on his body just like to see Shinji Iguchi is doing like he did the same thing with Attack on Titan where it was half mocap half practical effect and it seems to be like catching on within his movies and it's becoming well received and hopefully spreading to maybe like something like Jurassic Park or something where you can do these both things and it works really well and it's really believable and really like worthwhile to use because just using straight up cgi you saw it in the 98 godzilla movie with matthew broderick and you saw how bad that was you didn't have a believable godzilla you had like a a movie that could never hold up in any facet of the form and that's a whole nother story but the special effects were something that was very critical of in the very beginning of the movie but were super worthwhile in the end 
Although there was a part in the beginning of the movie where like he like his first form, quote unquote, of Godzilla is stumbling throughout the city and the audience like proceeded to laugh because you should have laughed because you don't know what this thing is. He's just he's a super gilled out monster just like stumbling across the city. You don't know what he is. He's super tiny, he looks like a dork, he had these goofy googly eyes. He was weird. And then you're like <laughs> progressing more and more and you see how terrifying he becomes and he becomes this actually terrifying like creature. A theater experience was another thing that made this movie so good because there's like this part he's revving up his like he's just walking through. He hasn't destroyed anything, but they drop missiles on his back. So part of this creature's defense mechanism defense mechanism is to evolve into the prime being. Like if he gets hurt, he has to retaliate. So he revs up his beam and he shoots out this fire and this fire almost turns supersonic. It turns out to this radiation beam and it goes like, like it was like really high pitched. And it's like, he's like blowing up every, like the most destruction in a Godzilla movie ever. And he's like destroying these planes. And I remember everybody in the audience applaud, like literally applauding towards this, like this limited release Godzilla movie, just freaking out everything I wanted and more in a Godzilla movie. And then, I'll say this again and again. I'll say this until the day I die. After he fires his breath, he's like, how do I take care of these jets? So this Godzilla fires off lasers coming out of his back. He's never done that before, ever. And when he did that, like like this, everyone was grown man just standing up and applauding like in this theater. And I was, my mind was blown. Everybody's mind was blown. Back lasers, dude. I love this movie so much. I can't say enough about it. I've heard a lot of praise for the movie, especially around the time that it did have that limited release. A lot of people uh, happy with the effects and uh, what the Godzilla looks like, and also um, the way that the humans react to it, and the way that it embraces kind of the political past it had before, but turning it on more modern issues. Um, before we wrap up here, did you have any final, any brief final thoughts on Godzilla? Maybe a final plea for people when they finally get a chance to watch this? I mean, yes, I I think this movie, like, I, as much as I talked about it, I legitimately think it's deserving of, of a, like, an American award or some sort of award, maybe like a foreign film award. That's how crazy I feel about it. It's, it might not be like Moonlight. It might not be like Green Room or all these other, like, well received films that came out this year or whatever. But, like, for me, it's this is this is a modern classic. This is a modern classic monster movie that will stand the test of time. It's like you have like the most amazing writing from Hideki Anu, who does some of the most existentialism, crazy, weird writing, especially for anime. And he was the head writer on this. Also, I think it's his, I believe it's his directorial debut too, which is another crazy thing. It has like just it, it felt like. A new renaissance for Godzilla. Hope, like maybe the next movie won't be as good, but just how crazy good this movie was. I probably will talk about this when I'm in my like old man rocking chair telling all the young kids like when I was 20 something, I went to go see a giant monster movie and it changed my life. That's how much I love Godzilla. It's almost embarrassing, but man, this movie, I love it. Well, thanks so much for coming on and telling us about Godzilla, Zach. I'm really looking forward to seeing it, and I'm bummed I missed it in its limited release earlier this year. Before we go, why don't you tell us a bit about your record label, Have Fun Records? Uh, Have Fun Records is a 
that was an indie record label of mine. Um, we were kind of in this sort of hiatus phase going throughout the end of the year because 2016 was such a uh, such a clusterfuck. So that we put it on a back burner, and now I'm starting it back up again. It's really nice. I'm loving it again. I have a passion for it, so it's good to be back. And where can people find Half Fun Records? Uh, we have our website, halffunrecords.org, uh, classmateofmindstole.com, so I have .org, or any social media site, it's Half Fun Rex, R-E-C-S. So follow us there. It'd be nice to have a bigger follower count, because apparently that matters for some people. All right, well, thanks for coming on, Zach. We look forward to having you on again in the new year. At the very least, when we finally get another Godzilla in America, we'll see uh, how it compares to the Shin Godzilla. I'd love to be your Godzilla correspondent. You've got the job. I mean, you're 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 more qualified than anybody anybody else I know. So, congratulations. Thank you. It's my lifelong dream. Some see her on the highways like a phantom passing through. But she never stays for long She's on the scent of something new Now some have tried to name her But she never stayed for long And some have tried to tame her Like the singer of this song Wiener dog, wiener dog Like wildfire her myth and legend spread Wiener dog Some shelter and a place to rest her head. A place to rest her head. We don't know. We don't know. Like wildfire, her myth and legend spread. All right, and now sitting with me is Landon DeFever, a contributor to Substream Magazine. Landon, what is your favorite movie of 2016? Well, first off, I want to preface it by saying um, that my pick is um, that I'm going to be talking about may not be my number one choice. Um, after all, I still need to see a lot from this year, um, especially from what's gathering Oscar buzz already. Um, films like La La Land, Moonlight, Manchester by the Sea, um, all the other buzzy stuff that's just coming out now. Um, however, my choice um, for number one has been my number in my number one spot for about seven to eight months now. And honestly, I, it, it would be difficult to dethrone regardless of how good a lot of those films are. So I felt comfortable saying what that was. Um, uh, and also, I think it would, it's only kind of fair to say what my top ten is as of right now. So I'm just going to um, say, like, these are some films that I've really been digging. And then I'll um, go into my number one. My number ten is Zootopia. Uh, nine is Hacksaw Ridge. Number eight is The Edge of Seventeen. Number seven is Sully. Number six is Sing Street. Number five is Deadpool. Number four is Ten Cloverfield Lane. Number three is Captain America Civil War. And number two is Don't Think Twice. And um, and the film that I'm going to be talking about today, my favorite film of 2016, is Everybody Wants Some. Uh, uh, firstly, I just want to preface this by saying also that I'm going to spoil the shit out of this movie. So if you haven't seen it, first off, do that because it's fantastic, and um, and then come back and yeah, hear what I had to say about it. Uh, much like any great movie, I you should I don't think you should know a thing about it before going in, and a lot of what's great about this movie is not knowing what you're about to experience, so just keep that in mind. Um, so with that, um, uh, Everybody Wants Some is the 18th feature-length uh, film from director Richard Linklater, whose work I absolutely adored, top to bottom. 
Uh, going into Everybody Wants Some, I already had really high expectations, not only because this is a film in its advertising had been referred to so much as the spiritual sequel to his 1993 film Dazed and Confused, a film that I don't really like as much as most people. I think it's, for the most part, it's pretty okay, but I really admire um, its influence on high school comedies and coming-of-age stories, a, a genre that I think Rink, Richard Linklater has mastered over the years. But what's also interesting about it is that it's the spiritual sequel to his previous film, Boyhood, in a way. Um, he never directly said this, but you could make that argument because in Boyhood, the film ends on this character, Mason, who we've, who we've witnessed live the entirety of his youth on screen for us and ends with him going off to college in the end. Uh, and for anyone that knows me, Boyhood is what I would consider to be my favorite film. Uh, and it's a film I still haven't shaken ever since I first saw it back in 2014. And I thought... It was a film that really captured what growing up was like for so many people and in also in a, re in a really unique way as well. Um, and I, I really couldn't have been more excited to see a film like Everybody Wants Some as his next project. And uh, now for everyone that hasn't seen the film, the movie's about Jake Bradford, played by the really great newcomer Blake Jenner. Um, he plays an incoming college freshman who's about to start his first year at the fictional Southeast Texas University as well as begin playing for the school's baseball team. He moves into a house where all the guys live. He meets everybody, and that's about it for the most part. And honestly, that's really all you need for a plot like this. Um, honestly, the, um, the film takes the course over a span of one weekend, and it's almost the antonym of what Linklater did with Boyhood. And, it, and Brilliant uses this time span to its advantage because it, um, and it kind of reminds us in a countdown of how much time is left before the weekend is up. And uh, it, it kind of makes for an um, interesting dynamic that way. Uh, in that weekend, uh, Jake and his team somehow fit in pretty much everyone, everything that most people would be lucky enough to do in an entire semester, let alone an entire weekend. They go to a disco, a country western bar, a punk rock club. They host parties at their house. Uh, Jake meets a really charming, likable girl named Beverly. Um, they talk. They learn more about each other. They share this really beautiful dialogue in a lake near their home uh, that's probably one of my favorite scenes from any film this year. And the chemistry that they share throughout the film is just extremely palpable and really likable. Uh, in short, much like Boyhood, uh, we let these characters just basically live their lives and we're kind of just lucky enough to go along for the ride with them. Uh, Licklater just knows, just has a master for laying out a time frame, putting the camera on and just kind of effortless, effortlessly lets us get to spend some time with some really likable people. And it's a journey I think we're lucky enough to get a, um, to really go along for the ride for. And uh, the biggest thing that really stood out to me about this film is its tone. Uh, the film has such a really beautiful, laid-back, relaxed, inoffensively refreshing kind of tone that allows for its characters to just kind of radiate charm throughout the entire movie. Uh, honestly, during the last act of this film, I started to feel like I was watching just a really good pilot for an HBO show. Uh, when the film was just kind of starting to draw to a close, I, I wanted it to keep going, honestly. I wanted to learn more about these characters, their backstory, uh, where they come from even more and how the school go for them. How do their games go? And uh, how do they, um, yeah, how do they balance that relationship? There's just, there's just so much great setup in this film that I just really didn't want it to end. And uh, it's ultimately very possible that, uh, yeah, and realistically, like it, it is very possible that I also came into everybody wants some at the right time in, uh, in my life. Uh, and more so I, I found it, it kind of found me at a perfect time as well. As someone that's just kind of leaving college, it was ultimately a really bittersweet feeling seeing, uh, seeing a film that about a group of people with such promise and charisma and charm starting off college in such an interesting way. 
And uh, in all honesty, it probably took me five years of going for my bachelor's degree to have as much fun in college as this cast does in an entire weekend. But uh, for me, I related to this film for that very reason. Um, overall, just Everybody Wants Some is a really perfect summation of the fun, exciting aspects of higher education. And it's a really funny, heartwarming, and surprisingly deep and philosophical exploration into the best memories one's going to ever have in college. So, and, and much like Boyhood, I think a lot of people will see a lot of themselves in Jake and, the, and his team's antics, experiences, discussions about life. Uh, and when they walk out, I think they'll feel all the more better about themselves for having witnessed it. Basically, I just want to close by saying that um, when writing my thoughts on this review, I was just kind of finishing The Office on Netflix for probably my eighth or ninth time. It's my, it's my favorite TV show ever. And there's a quote from Andy Bernard, uh, played by Ed Helms, that kind of stood out to me that when I was writing this, uh, where he's kind of reminiscing about the past spent at The Office in, at Dunder Mifflin. And he basically tells the camera, I wish you could know you're in the good old days before you actually leave them. And that quote, I felt really summated my thoughts on everybody wants some. And I honestly, I can only hope my good old days are as half as wonderful as these are. Well, thank you so much for telling us about everybody wants some. It's one of the ones I haven't been able to get to yet. I've kind of been putting it off until I check out Days of Confused again, even sure. though it's not a straight sequel. Right. Oh, for sure. And I would also add that uh, you don't necessarily you don't have to see everybody want you don't have to see Dazed and Confused. I would say still go see it because I think a lot of people really like it, even though I'm in, I'm obviously in the minority on that, even though I don't really like it that much. I think it I think it's a little too mean for me and I think it's a little too much going on with like the hazing and things like that. But Aside from that, there are a lot of aspects and a lot of young stars that, that we really like now that are really cool that is great to see. But you don't have to see it to get what's going on in this film. So uh, you, you should probably see Days of Confused at some point to anyone that hasn't seen either, but you don't need to see it to watch this one. And also a nice year for Blake Jenner between with uh, Critical Darlings between this and uh, The Edge of Seventeen. So oh, for sure. Good on yeah, you, he... Blake Jenner. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was one of the more underrated parts of Edge of 17, I thought. Because um, Haley Steinfeld, like, deservedly so, has gotten so much buzz for what she's done. And in that film, and uh, and Kira Sedgwick, too, was really great. But I think it's his performance, I think, it doesn't carry the film, but I think it does add a lot that wouldn't have been there otherwise. I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what else he can do with um, now that he's kind of had two really big hits this year. Wonderful. Well, thanks for coming on again, Landon. And we look forward to having you on again soon in the new year. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This was great. Thanks, Tyler. I'm not your normal definition of a rock star. I don't complain when my private jet is subpar. Your mom's old, but I'll ask if she's your sister. People say I'm charming, but blood, I beg to differ. I feel more humble than Dikembe Mutombo after a stumble left him covered in a big pot of gumbo. I guess, in a way, being gracious is my weakness. People say I'm so unpretentious for a genius. I've got it all. And now joining me on the Let the Right Films In stage, it's past guest and also good friend, Gabriel Akins. In that order? In that order, yes. Okay. Well, you know, I <laughs> just want people to know properly how I value them what traits I value them for and just know where they stand, you know, that, that's some good branding too. That's uh, yeah. You know, you get it. You get it. Now, Gabe, you too have brought a movie before 
Let the Right Films In Today. Your movie from 2016 that you love, cherish, and want to discuss. What is that movie? That movie would be the Valentine's Day heart warmer, Deadpool. See, I thought you were going in a different direction. I thought you meant actual Valentine's Day, but okay. (laughs) Tell me, what is so great about Deadpool? I don't know if I've heard of this film. Well, this Deadpool movie... Uh, the best part about it, for me at least, is that this is the first movie in like the last six to seven years that actually uses Ryan Reynolds correctly. Because a lot, I think, with Ryan Reynolds, like he's kind of been typecast into two kind of roles throughout his career, either kind of the like lovable loser kind of deal, or trying to shoehorn him into leading man. And I don't think either really fits him. I mean, obviously, he is Ryan Reynolds. He's a very beautiful man. So he doesn't really fit as a lovable loser, because just looking at his angel face, you wouldn't believe he's a loser, right? I don't know. I saw voices, and he was pretty messed up in that. That's true. But that was also a very particular movie. But at the same time, I th- like he's so goofy that when you try to put him into a serious movie... Like recently, other superhero movie that he tried to launch called R.I.P.D. <laughs> that too. I was thinking Green Lantern, but I know of no such movie. Point being, I think he's too goofy to be like your like typical action hero main guy, and Deadpool kind of mixes the two perfectly because he gets to be the lead man while also just being completely over the top ridiculous. They gave a side character a starring role, and that's kind of what Ryan Reynolds was built for. Right, definitely. And you liked this Deadpool movie, is what you're saying. I did enjoy this Deadpool movie. What is it that worked for you about this movie? Ryan Reynolds is pretty great in it, I hear. Uh, You have said as much. Uh, What else do you enjoy about Deadpool? What makes it work? I think what makes it work for me is, with the character, I think s like weird like internet culture has proven that deadpool it, like obviously his whole his whole thing is breaking the fourth wall and i think it's very easy to go too far into that to the point where it's not really coherent it's just fourth wall breaking like referential shit just over and over and i think the movie struck a really good balance of having an actual movie plot while just using that kind of fourth wall just to, you know, highlight tropes or make fun of itself. And it didn't get too much into just like, oh, let's see how many jokes we can cram into this. Though it did cram a fair few jokes into it. It did, but I feel that most of them landed and most of them worked within the structure of the movie proper. And they managed to give Deadpool an actual character and some motivation and uh, a love interest, even. Right. Like a love interest who was herself her own character. Indeed. And it's kind of, it's a little bit more relatable than a lot of superhero movies because his main motivation is, hey, I'm ugly and I don't want my girlfriend to see me now. I want to find the guy who made me ugly and have him fix me. It is a certainly a peculiar motivation a, in a movie. A I tale, a tale as old as time. It, it is Frank. It is a bit Frankenstein, you know, just a little bit. 
Just, uh, you know, if the doctor was actually a ruthless hitman. Exactly. I also, I also like it because as much as I do love the whole superhero movie thing going on, I'm a big fan of most of what Marvel has to offer and not a fan of what DC has to offer, but I'm willing to be if they make better movies. But I think even some more of the lighthearted Marvel movies are still fairly serious. Like, there are jokes in there, but you still get into some heavy stuff. And I think it was just refreshing where in Deadpool, like, the stakes aren't that high. Yeah, like, cutting off limbs and disemboweling people is not a big deal. Exactly. I mean, with Deadpool, it grows back. <laughs> but he is just saving his girlfriend. It's not about saving the world or saving a state. It's just this, 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 uh, this guy, this mercenary with an ugly face... Just trying to save his girl, you know? Make him a couple goofy friends on the way. Exactly. And I mean, like, when you think about, like, I loved Civil War, another action movie, superhero movie that came out this year. But even on top of all the, like, wisecracking in that, I mean, it's really about, like, global politics. Which I love in my summer blockbusters. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Gotta bust out those. Gotta bust out the thesis paper on them. Well, you know, my favorite part of the uh, Star Wars prequels was all the talk about the trade wars. So this that kind of just fit right in with that. Oh, definitely. I'm into it. Now, okay, moving forward, uh, I, Deadpool was a bit of a success, and it turns out you were not the only person who liked it. Uh, there were a few other people who liked it, and through at, at every, least five, through every bit of money they had at it, and there will now be a sequel, but not with that director or. The composer, does this worry you? A little bit, yes. Because I think how I was talking about how with the fourth wall and how the jokes worked within the context of the movie, I think there's definite risk of going too far into that and kind of turning it into an incoherent mess. Well, you know, everyone loves an incoherent mess. Now, Gabe most people have seen it but if there is someone out there who just doesn't like superhero movies and is holding out or someone who you know they saw it and it just didn't work for them what is the final plea you want to make to those people to convert them for this little movie that could you know and help it get over the edge Uh, i would say for if you like just straight up action superhero movies and are a little too worried about it being too goofy uh, there's still definitely, as you said earlier, lots of swords and shooting and dismemberment and blood splatters and all the good action movie stuff that you want in an action movie. And for people who just who want it to be a comedy, all the jokes land well. Uh, Ryan Reynolds is as charming and humorous as ever. Uh, the wonderful T.J. Miller is always hilarious, and he is on his A game in this movie. And just, it really, it works really well just as a comedy on top of working as a superhero movie. So if it was too much, if you thought it might be too much of a mix of both to really vibe with what you like, you should watch it anyway because it's really good on both ends of the spectrum. All right. Thank you very much, Gabe. We look forward to having you on the podcast again soon. And, you know, maybe one day when Deadpool comes out, if this world is still here and this podcast is still ex- in existence, we'll have you on to talk about that, too. Hey, I'd Who love knows? to. It'll, it'll be a while till we get that, though. 
And until then, I don't know, thanks for being on. Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> we are heading out to sea. And however it'll be, it ain't gonna be the same. Cause no matter what we see when we're out there on the sea, we ain't gonna see a dame. We'll be searching high and low on the deck and down below, but it's a crying shame. Oh, we'll see a lot of fish, but we'll never clock a dish. We ain't gonna see a dame. No dames. See some octopuses No days Or a half a dozen clams No days We might even see a mermaid But mermaid's got no Why do we even have this podcast if Carol isn't on the IMDb? Yeah, did you not see me tweet this out? (laughs) It's a 7.2. We base our podcast on a system that gave Carol 2015, directed by Todd Haynes, a 7.2. This is an outrage. Godless heathens. This this is an outrage. There are podcasts about watching bad movies over and over again, and I get it's for the comedy, but if we're going to have a podcast in the world about watching a movie over and over again, repeatedly, and podcasting it every time, why is it not Carol 2015 directed by Todd Haynes? That's a good question. We'll leave you with that yeah. <laughs> for the end of the year. We should just go right into it now. Uh, so anyways, this is uh, our bonus episode. <laughs> Carol 2015 directed by Todd Haynes is the 2015 movie directed by Todd Haynes. Starring Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara and Rooney Mara's bangs. And also that dude who's really annoying the whole time. And also Sarah Paulson is in it for a minute. And also Carrie Brown's. Sorry. This is this is like prime blooper material for sure, but don't put this in the episode. <laughs> I'm just gonna put a little <laughs> at the end. The like last segment is teaser for <laughs> Carol 2015 directed by <laughs> Which we will be referring to it as that. Till the end of time. So. This episode is not sponsored by Carol 2015, directed by Todd Haynes. Again, as I But said, it is dedicated to Carol 2015, directed by Todd Haynes. If Rooney Mara or Kate Blanchett want to make out with me, I <laughs> am down. Kate Blanchett could murder me. <laughs> like, honestly, if Kate Blanchett, like, stabbed me, I'd probably be like, thanks. <laughs> Can Rooney Mara not do that because she still has to make up for Pam? Is that the... The hang up there. Rooney Mara would have to be specifically dressed as Elizabeth Sounder. Oh, okay. Otherwise, she's like too sweet. Too bad we'll never see that in the movie again. Shut up. All right, I'm leaving. Goodbye.